Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. And look, I'm just going to cut straight to the chase, guys. I'm in a good mood. I've been in a good mood for like a week, and I don't expect it to last. All things in this life are temporal. All things fade. All things go. And I've been trying to identify the source of my good mood. And all I can determine is the only thing, I don't know, here's what's, nothing's changed. But maybe I've sort of settled into something that I'm enjoying, you know, settled into a schedule in which I feel productive and I'm doing work that I enjoy, but I'm not feeling like I'm working too hard. And for me, working too hard would probably be anything in excess of four hours a day because I am many things, but chief among them is lazy. I'm a bit lazy in that I don't want to, I don't want to be working all day. I don't have any interest in that. And you know, like when I'm on a set, okay. And believe me, that's increasingly rare, but when I'm on a set, the days are long, right? Like you get there and you break it up mentally into two parts because you know, it's going to be a long day. The first part is a six-hour stretch, okay? The first six hours. Why is the first six hours critical? Because after six hours on a set from the start of the call time is lunch. And so you plan, I look ahead to lunch. And that's what, where all my energy and hope is going. What will they have for lunch? What will the salad bar be like? Who am I going to sit at lunch with? Are we going to have fun chit chats? You know, lunch. And lunch is always delicious on a film set because it's always free and free food is always delicious. And then after lunch, you ha- uh, I have to be careful. Like I'm not allowed to have dessert at lunch because then I get sleepy. I can't have dessert. Um, and I have to just sort of endure the rest of the day, whatever that's going to be like. It doesn't mean I'm not having fun on the set, but my thoughts inevitably go towards after lunch. They go towards when can I go home 
When can I leave here? And do I have to come back tomorrow? It doesn't matter how much fun I'm having because there's an inherent laziness about me that wants at all times to be home and doing not much of, all, uh, of anything at all. But if I don't do anything, then I start to feel sort of squidgy inside. And so lately, I have developed a productive schedule where I do, you know, three, four, five hours a day of quote unquote work. I put work in quotes because I'm not really being remunerated for any of it. You know, like I'm working on a, well, I'm working on a book. I haven't sold the book. I don't know that I'll even finish the book, but I'm working on it. I'm doing this podcast. I'm not getting paid for this podcast. I'm doing another podcast. And I, I'm not going to say what it is, but if you like this, you will be pleased. Not really going to get paid for that either. I do cameos. That's the only place where I'm making any money. And so I look around the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library and I think to myself, hey, Michael, this may not exist in your life for very much longer if you can't get a fucking job. And, you know, what are you going to do? My daughter, who is 17, said her friend just got a job doing Instacart where she's picking up people's groceries, you know, and, and dropping them off at their house. And I thought maybe I should get a job at Instacart. But I don't think that would really help. It wouldn't help my mental state and it really wouldn't help my finances. So I'm in a good mood regarding everything except the finances. And, you know, I'm just going to hang on to that as long as I can. Let's get to the book, shall we? Chapter four. When last we were with the big buddy, he had been, you know, hanging out in a little hovel, watching a little family going about their day. And he was at first wary, you know, because people to this point had been basically mean to him, you know, name calling, stone throwing, making him feel bad about his appearance, you know, shaming him, monster shaming him, essentially. And it, you know, it, it had him down. So he crawled into this hovel and, and it happens to abut this house. And he looked through the chinks in the wall to the family and he saw, and we don't know the precise nature of this family. We know there's three of them. There's an older man, there's uh, a younger man and a, and a younger woman. And we think maybe they're married or maybe they're brother and sister. I don't know. But then the, and then the older guy is the dad in some capacity. But regardless, it was very tender doings between the three of them. And, and the big buddy felt, you know, his deformed heart melt just a little bit. And that's where we left it. So chapter four. I lay on my straw, but I could not sleep. I thought of the occurrences of the day. What chiefly struck me was the gentle manners of these people, and I longed to join them, but dared not. I remembered too well the treatment I had suffered the night before from the barbarous villagers and resolved whatever course of conduct I might hereafter think it right to pursue that for the present I would remain quietly in my hovel, watching and endeavoring to discover the motives which influenced their actions. Smart. You know, it's like defensive driving. You know, you're out there with a bunch of people and maybe some people are good drivers and consider drivers and they wave you over into their lanes. But, you know, there's some people who are real assholes on the road and they're swerving back and forth. And, you know, 
you, you don't want to be one of those people. You don't want to get in their way. So, you know, you practice defensive driving. That's what the big buddy's doing. He's practicing defensive humaning. The cottagers arose the next morning before the sun. The young woman arranged the cottage and prepared the food, and the youth departed after the first meal. The day was passed in the same routine as that which preceded it. The young man was constantly employed out of doors and the girl in various laborious occupations within. The old man, whom I soon perceived to be blind, employed his leisure hours on his instrument or in contemplation. Nothing could exceed the love and respect which the younger cottagers exhibited towards their venerable companion. They performed towards him every little office of affection and duty with gentleness, and he rewarded them by his benevolent smiles. Um, You know, that's fine, but, you know, how about you pay the rent too, old man? How about you pay some rent? Okay, benevolent smiles is fine, and, you know, it's going to get you, and it's going to get you, uh, you know, appreciation and warmth in return, but maybe put down the instrument and stop the contemplation, get a job. You are not handicapped, my man. You are handy capable. They were not entirely happy. The young man and his companion often were apart and appeared to weep. I saw no, no cause for their unhappiness, but I was deeply affected by it. If such lovely creatures were miserable, it was less strange that I, an imperfect and solitary being should be wretched. Yet why were these gentle beings unhappy? They possessed a delightful house, for such it was in my eyes. Yeah, well, you're living in a hovel, dude. And every luxury. They had a fire to warm them when chill. And delicious viands, V-I-A-N-D-S, when hungry. Viands, viands, I, you know, food. Let's just go, let's go with food or snacks and or snacks. When hungry, they were dressed in excellent clothes, and still more, they enjoyed one another's company and speech, interchanging each day looks of affection and kindness. What did their tears imply? Did they really express pain? I was at first unable to solve these questions, but perpetual attention and time explained to me many appearances which were at first enigmatic. Well, I was going to, you know, I guess, I guess we're about to hear the explanation about why they're unhappy. But I thought to myself at first, well, hey, big buddy, you know, you've just been born into this world. What you don't understand is what the Buddha understood many years before, which is that all life is suffering. That is the immutable nature of life itself. It is suffering big buddy, even I in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library understands that my happiness is temporal, that underneath it is suffering. And you heard my anxiety. You heard my financial distress. You know, you heard even my desire to maintain my happiness. And what is that desire if not suffering? So, you know, I'm just imagining that they're suffering because all life is suffering, right? But maybe, maybe there's some more earthly explanation for it. A considerable period elapsed before I discovered one of the causes of the uneasiness of this amiable family. It was poverty. 
and they suffered that evil in a very distressing degree. Their nourishment consisted entirely of the vegetables of their garden and the milk of one cow, which gave very little during the winter, when its masters could scarcely procure food to support it. They often, I believe, suffered the pangs of hunger very poignantly, especially the two younger cottages, for several times they placed food before the old man when they reserved none for themselves. So they're, they're poor, you know? They're poor. And poverty is suffering. There's no getting around it. Of course, you know, let's go back to Buddhism for a second. In, in Buddhism, the monks are the poorest of all. They don't have anything. And yet, what are they training themselves to do? To rid their lives of suffering. You know, one way to relieve suffering is to get a nice bowl of soup in your belly. But they don't do that, you know? They rely on donations. They rely on alms from others to relieve their suffering because they understand that they cannot, that possessions in this world, material things will not alleviate their suffering any more than a bowl of soup will ultimately alleviate their hunger. So it's, you know, it's the old teach a man to fish thing, but here's the thing. It's like teach a man to fish, but you got to keep fishing because you're going to get miserable at some point. And these cottagers, you know, they just don't have enough fish and they're feeding the old blind guy. And the blind guy doesn't even know it because he can't see that they don't have enough food for themselves. So they're probably making munching sounds while he's eating. You know, they're probably going, you know, he's probably going, mm, the vegetables and are good from the garden today and the milk is tasty. And they're probably going, mm, 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 mm. yeah, yeah, dad or grandpa, it is, it is good. Mm, 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 mm. But they're faking it, you know, because they don't want him to feel bad. And meanwhile, they're just looking at each other with tears in their eyes because they're so hungry. I mean, it's very, it's very poignant. No kidding. Very poignant stuff. And meanwhile, what the hell is the big buddy eating? He's sitting there in a hobble. He's got no food. What's he eating? He's a big bu- He's a big boy. You know, you got to burn a lot of calories just to maintain an eight-foot tall frame. And there's nothing around. And he's, he's cramped in a hobble. What the hell is he eating? I mean, these are questions to ponder. And uh, I don't know, let's do that. Let's ponder them for a second. I haven't eaten today either. You hear me bitching and moaning about it? No, because I, you know, I have plenty of food in my house. Uh, we'll ponder those questions. I'm not even going to, I'm not going to get a snack. I'm not going to get any VNs at all. I'm just going to sit here and contemplate for a moment while we take a break here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back on Obscure, and the cottagers are being kindly towards each other, and they're feeding the old man, even though they don't have food for themselves. And the big buddy is observing all of this with uh, empathy and wonder. This trait of kindness moved me sensibly. I had been accustomed during the night to steal a part of their store for my own consumption. Oh, so that's what he's been doing. He's been taking some of their bok choy. But when I found that in doing this, I inflicted pain on the cottagers, I abstained and satisfied myself with berries, nuts, and roots, which I gathered from a neighboring wood. I'm assuming they are bok choy farmers. You know, they've probably cornered the market on bok choy up there in the Swiss Alps. You know, probably nobody else is growing bok choy but them. And if they could just get people excited about bok choy, the way the palm people got people excited about pomegranates a few years ago, they could be rolling in it. I discovered also another means through which I was enabled to assist their labors. I found that the youth spent a great part of each day in collecting wood for the family fire. And during the night, I often took his tools, the use of which I quickly discovered and brought home firing sufficient for the consumption of several days. I remember the first time that I did this, the young woman, when she opened the door in the morning, appeared greatly astonished at seeing a great pile of wood on the outside. She uttered some words in a loud voice, and the youth joined her, who also expressed surprise. I observed with pleasure that he did not go to the forest that day, but spent it in repairing the cottage and cultivating the garden. By degrees, I made a discovery of still greater moment. I found that these people possessed a method of communicating their experience and feelings to one another by articulate sounds. I perceived that the words they spoke sometimes produced pleasure or pain, smiles or sadness in the minds and countenances of the hearers. This was indeed a godlike science, and I ardently desired to become acquainted with it. But I was baffled in every attempt I made for this purpose. Their pronunciation was quick in the words they uttered, not having any apparent connection with visible objects, I was unable to discover any clue by which I could unravel the mystery of their reference. By great application, however, and after having remained during the space of several revolutions of the moon in my hovel, I discovered the names that were given to some of the most familiar objects of discourse. I learned and applied the words fire, milk, bread, and wood. I learned also the names of the cottagers themselves. The youth and his companion had each of them several names, but the old man had only one, which was father. The girl was called Sister, or Agatha, and the youth Felix, 
brother or son. Ah, they're brother and son and father. Got it. It's a trio, you know. It's uh, it's not a marriage. It's uh, you know, it's a little family affair. I cannot describe the delight I felt when I learned the ideas appropriated to each of these sounds and was able to pronounce them. I distinguished several other words without being as yet to understand or apply them, such as good, dearest, unhappy. Well, it's something we hadn't really considered before, have we? Because the big buddy it has been so eloquent in all of this and has such a fluency in the language that we just assumed, I guess, I assumed that, you know, I don't know, I, I don't, you know that he had picked up the idea, at least, of language a little more readily than this. But yeah, I mean, if you don't know who you are, what you are, sensations, you don't know what separates you from the world around you, and suddenly, you know, you're being pelted by stones, and you don't have time to read Milton, you don't have time to learn even what language is. And now, by studying these people, in hearing them talking day after day after day, like he's kind of figuring it out. The same way when I spent that summer in Greece, I learned how to speak Greek and now I'm fluent. Of course, I have never been to Greece and I do not speak Greek, but that would be an example if it were true, which it is not. But this is how we all learn language, you know, by absorption. It is an osmotic learning process. There's no other way to understand conceptually what language is, but we learn it so young and we seem to be hardwired for it that we don't think about it. But Mary Shelley, to her credit, is like, wait a minute, how will this thing even understand what those sounds are? And the answer is by laying in a hovel for a few months and having to listen to them drone on and on and on. And eventually you figure it out. Oh, they're talking about stuff. And she's describing the process by which he figured it out, which is great. Great, great. Good for you, big buddy. I spent the winter in this manner. The gentle manners and beauty of the cottagers greatly endeared them to me. When they were unhappy, I felt depressed. When they rejoiced, I sympathized in their joys. I saw few human beings besides them, and if any other happened to enter the cottage, their harsh manners and rude gait only enhanced to me the superior accomplishments of my friends." The old man, I could perceive, often endeavored to encourage his children, as sometimes I found that he called them to cast off their melancholy. He would talk in a cheerful accent, with an expression of goodness that bestowed pleasure even upon me. Agatha listened with respect, her eyes sometimes filled with tears, which she endeavored to wipe away unperceived, but I generally found that her countenance and tone were more cheerful after having listened to the exhortations of her father. It was not thus with Felix. And here we have a little trouble in paradise, folks. He was always the saddest of the group. And even to my unpracticed senses, he appeared to have suffered more deeply than his friends. But if his countenance was more sorrowful, his voice was more cheerful than that of his sister, especially when he addressed the old man. So he's just, you know, he's putting on a happy face. Put on a happy face. Spread sunshine all over the plains and put on a happy face. But he's lying, you know? He's whistling in the dark. You know, he's just, he's faking it because he's miserable, you know, probably clinically, probably clinically miserable. 
And, you know, back then, as, as you know, all they had was Prozac. Like they didn't even have the more advanced class of SSRIs. So even if, you know, he could afford the Prozac, which it's unlikely his insurance was covering it, at least a full prescription, it probably wasn't that helpful for him. I could mention innumerable instances which, although slight, marked the dispositions of these amiable cottagers. In the midst of poverty and want, Felix carried with pleasure to his sister the first little white flower that peeped out from beneath the snowy ground. Early in the morning, before she had risen, he cleared away the snow that obstructed her path to the milk house, drew water from the well, and brought the wood from the outhouse, where, to his perpetual astonishment, he found his store always replenished by an invisible hand. In the day, I believe, he worked sometimes for a neighboring farmer because he often went forth and did not return until dinner, yet brought no wood with him. At other times, he worked in the garden, but as there was little to do in the frosty season, he read to the old man and Agatha. So, if, if it's me, right, and I'm living in a little cottage with my sister and my dad, and one of my duties is to go chop wood, and then one day I open the door and there's a pile of wood there, I think to myself, well, somebody did me a good deed, and I'm grateful, and I'm going to take this wood and be happy about it. But if the wood kept appearing and my stores never decreased, I would start to get a little creeped out and worried. What the hell is happening here? How do I explain this? And my desire to explain it would outweigh my gratitude for it. And so what I would do is I would probably stay up at night, you know, and look out the little window or find myself a little hiding patch and see who exactly was bringing me this wood. At the very least, you'd want to tip your hat and say, hey, thank you, partner. You know, can I give you some bok choy in return? Can I do something to help you out the way you've helped me out? Because it's a good thing, but it's a little weird, it's mysterious, and I'm sorry, it's a little creepy. But apparently, Felix didn't think to do that, and Agatha didn't think to do that. They just took the wood. Okay, well, it's a good thing one day, but it could easily turn into a bad thing the next. What if they come knocking on your door and say, well, you know, where's my payment for all the wood you've been burning? And then suddenly they're up a creek, aren't they? So I'd want to know. I don't understand why Felix and Agatha haven't set up some sort of trap, you know, for lack of a better word, to see who's bringing the wood. But they haven't done that. Okay. So he's reading to the old man and Agatha. This reading had puzzled me extremely at first, but by degrees I discovered that he uttered many of the same sounds when he read as when he talked. I conjectured, therefore, that he found on the paper signs for speech which he understood, and I ardently longed to comprehend these also. But how was that possible when I did not even understand the sounds for which they stood as signs? I improved, however sensibly, in this science, but not sufficiently to follow up any kind of conversation, although I applied my whole mind to the endeavor. For I easily perceived that although I eagerly longed to discover myself, and then there's surprisingly a footnote, I eagerly longed to discover myself. Oh, to show himself, I'm guessing. That's what discovering means. But let's just confirm that with the footnote. So uh, to discover 
myself. Um, volume two, chapter four. We're just looking for our footnote here. Let me turn the page. Chapter four, discover myself here, meaning reveal myself. So yes, yes, I was right. We didn't need the footnote after all. Though I eagerly longed to discover myself to the cottagers, I ought not to make the attempt until I had first become master of their language. Which knowledge might enable me to make them overlook the deformity of my figure? And, you know, we should note also the fact that he's eight feet tall. For with this also, the contrast perpetually presented to my eyes had made me acquainted. I had admired perfect forms of my cottagers, their grace, beauty, and delicate complexions. But how was I terrified when I viewed myself in a transparent pool? At first, I started back, unable to believe that it was indeed I who was reflected in the mirror. And when I became fully convinced that I was, in reality, the monster that I am, I was filled with the bitterest sensations of despondence and mortification. Alas, I did not yet entirely know the fatal effects of this miserable deformity. Now, why don't we stop there for the day? There are going to be some fatal effects of his miserable deformity. And as you know, I like to end when things are about to take a turn for the worse, or, you know, at least we know something terrible is going to happen. I mean, look, we know a lot of terrible things are going to happen, but we're not going to let it, we're not going to let the terribleness affect our moods today, right? We have all been uplifted today. I don't know. I don't know why I said that. It's probably not true at all. It's probably not true at all. Why would you have been uplifted? I don't know. I'm just in a good mood. You know, that's how we started. So I'm going to end. I'm in a good mood. I'm going to go out. I'm going to a bookstore. Uh, but Michael, there's a pandemic. Yes, there's a pandemic. I'm going to be masked. The owner of the bookstore asked me to sign some books and I'm going to do it. I'm going to risk life and limb to sign books. I am hoping to be vaccinated soonish. My state has just released guidelines for people in my age group. It seems like in a few weeks, I should be able to get vaccinated for the first time. You know, first vaccination. I hope some of you have already been through the whole drill. Yeah. And then I don't know, you know, part of me is worried because what happens if I get vaccinated and everybody gets vaccinated and then the world opens back up and then my delicate schedule is upended because I have to return to work in some capacity. I mean, I know I said like, you know, the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library could go away, but wouldn't it be nice if I could just keep on this schedule forever? This schedule of minimal work. I like it. Um, but I do need at some point, some remuneration. And that point is rapidly approaching. And lunchtime is rapidly approaching. I just heard my stomach gurgle. And so I suppose now is as good a time as any to thank you for your continued listenership. If you haven't checked out the Michael Ian Blast, I'm doing those every couple of weeks on, I just, you know, check my Twitter feed. Uh, I think attendance has been uh, fine, but not great. And that is the theme of my career. Fine, but not great. Um, but again, I'm not complaining. I'm satisfied, you know. And uh, I hope all of you are satisfied. I hope you have a tremendous week. 
will rejoin each other, anon, uh, on another uplifting episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where not only will you be receiving every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein way before the general public hears them, but you'll also get bonus episodes, uh, writings, musings, jokes aplenty, and if you sign up to our highest tier, you get to join the semi-regular book club, which we hold every now and again. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.